a seat. Uh, we'll get started here real quick. So if you guys have a Bible, we uh, stick to the Word. We go verse by verse. I think we have some Bibles on the table. If you do not have a Bible, you are more than welcome to take that. And, uh, you know, that's totally cool. If you don't own one, steal it. Holy stealing, right? Um, so tonight uh, we continue our uh, journey through kind of the dark areas of our life, not the, uh, the so popular sins and the, the really juicy drama things, but kind of the unspoken things that rest within our faith that kind of hold us back. We talked about bitterness several weeks ago, about how bitterness is a root that's in us that can keep us uh, held down and captive to reaching our potential and reaching the, fulfill- the fulfillment and, and fullness of God's call in our life. We also talked about attitude, about how attitude is everything. You champ or you chump. Two weeks ago, we talked about WTF. Where's the fruit? Where is the fruit birthing from your life? And uh, we got to look at everything that we do and what we say and where we go. And we got to look for where the fruit is. And, and tonight, we get to talk about favoritism. And uh, you don't see a whole lot of messages on that. I was trying to find out, does anybody else talk about this? I don't find anything. So favoritism is uh, going to be where we're going to go tonight. And we're going verse by verse through the book of James. So if you have a Bible, turn uh, over that direction now. And we're in James chapter 2. Pardon the sniffles, I'm fending off something. James chapter 2, verse 1. It says, my brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If he shows special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there, or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles as just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So, Father God, we thank you for your word. God, we pray that tonight you would speak through the scriptures the truth. Lord, we don't want to hear from anybody else but you. And God, we pray that you would penetrate, God, our hearts. God, with unquenchable thirst and hunger, God, for the wisdom you place before us tonight. Let us to be responsible, God, with these truths and apply it. Amen. So favoritism in boxes. Um, I think this is something we're all guilty of. I think this is something that maybe is kind of unspoken. You see clicks and you see things, and, and there's nothing wrong with having people that you really gel with. 
I know my wife is, is a doctor. I mean, she's a horse vet. I mean, it's a doctor. I mean, so she naturally gravitates to people who are striving academically, I mean, are, are in that world, and that's, that's fine. But there's a, a threshold and a boundary where we have things that transcend our affinity and begin to get outside the lines. As we look at church, we look at, at a body of individuals who come together, especially in a format like this, it's really easy to begin to put some walls up and protect ourselves and to start looking out for ourselves. And we're going to discuss tonight about how that is toxic for us, not only individually, but us as a community of followers of, of Jesus. And so the first thing is that we all need to know that we're works in progress. There's no condemnation. I know we're going to talk about things. I'm really convicted about a lot of things tonight, but we are all works in progress. As long as we know that, we're okay. But we also need to know that everybody around us is also work in progress. Not a, not a single person has it dialed and figured out. I love it because when um, I'm a small business owner, I have a couple companies, and I started out of, out of uh, my dorm room in college. And I've been self-employed. I haven't had a W-2 since I was 15. Um, and so it's funny because you, you meet people and talk to people, and you already know that, you know, I kind of have a little bit of a younger face or whatever, and, and people just don't take you seriously. When I go on business trips and meetings, I'll sometimes get there, and they're like, is your mom coming? You know, like, can you even rent a car yet? You know, those types of questions. And even I remember my very first big business deal. My biggest deal, I went to the bank, and I, I mean, I had a check. This is the biggest check I've ever had written. I wanted it to be on, like, one of those huge ones, you know, and, like, carded in or something. And so I'm super casual. This is, like, what I wear to work, oftentimes flip-flops. And I go to the bank, and this teller is there, and so there's all these um, guys in, in big suits because my bank is at this huge law firm. Everybody's done up to the hill. And uh, so I go there, and, uh, you know, I'm there, and I'm in, like, the merchant line, you know, but I'm in flip-flops. And so I'm coming here, and I have, like, my prize check, right? This is going to, like, feed our families for, like, five months or something. And uh, so I go there, and, and the, the teller sees me come up to his window, and he could not be more turned off by who's come up to his booth. He probably just got done cashing some quarter-million-dollar check or something like that from some attorney, and uh, here I come. And so I was like, yeah, I have a deposit, and I just have one, and I went straight to the teller, so I didn't bring a deposit slip. I'm just, I wanted to get there before it was stolen, right? So I charge up, and, and, and so he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, here's a, you know, do you have a deposit slip? I was like, no, I just, just this one check. And he pulls out a little slip and, like, throws it on there and throws a pen on the table. I was like, okay. So I put my check down, and I start writing in my account number and details. And he sees the check. He grabs the deposit slip from me. He's like, oh, let me do that for you now. Let me take care of this. Oh, and, you know, he pulls up my account, and, you know, oh, and he realizes that he's busted because he totally judged me before I got to the window. And, you know, it's like, you know, what does your business do and whatever. And so suddenly the whole entire context changed. And I kind of have to deal with that a little bit being young and in businesses that I have this little uphill battle, you know, with that. And so I think as we look at it around us and we meet people, and, and in these environments we get to meet someone just briefly. And sometimes we can put up expectations and assumptions about people that aren't fair to them. Have you ever had someone kind of get to know you and they're like, man, when I first kind of knew about you or saw you from a distance, I thought you were a jerk. You know, have you gotten that before? I think that really runs rampant, especially in Christian circles, especially in environments like this. And so we get to talk about that tonight because it kind of pings us a little bit. I have a feeling that after tonight, we're all going to be a lot nicer to each other too, which is awesome. But I think that the reason that boxes and, and assumptions are harmful is because it, it puts an expectation on somebody. And that's uh, problematic for a lot of reasons. And so this tonight follows in the, the pursuit that we want to be a fruitful generation and fruitful community. We want to be birthing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And so 
Uh, favoritism kind of flows in the vein of being loving, of loving and actually having that transformational love go through us. So I want to, real quick, as we uh, have our commitment to the Word, is just break down so we have an understanding of the Scripture before we reveal its truths. So verse 1, My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Everyone say favoritism. Now my, Eric Knopf, no uh, accredentialed, uh, explanation of favoritism for me is judgment, expectation, and motive. Judgment, expectation, and motive. Judgment, you have a split-second decision about who someone is and what they're about. Next is expectation. You have an expectation of the value in which they can contribute to yourself. What is it in it for you? Is this person someone that will give me access to more friends? Are they, is this a person I can hang out with socially? Is this person I don't want to really be with? Like, what expectations are you having upon this person and next is the motive. The motive is a split-second decision where you get to, s- to decide if they are in or out of your circle. And then you get to decide how you treat them going forward. Are you going to say hello to them? Are you going to open yourself up? So it's about judgment, expectation, and motive. That's what we're talking about favoritism tonight. All three of those things are baked in here. Verses 2 through 4. Suppose that a man comes into you wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now the evil thoughts, the evil thoughts is exactly that, the judgment, the expectation, and the motive, particularly the second two, the expectation and the motive. Those in this context are the evil thoughts. When you look at someone and all of a sudden you picture what is it in it for me with this relationship with this person, or who they are, and then you decide how you're going to move forward with that, that, scripturally here, is an evil thought. Bummer. So, we get to deal with that. <laughs> Verse 5. Listen, my dear brothers, has God, has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom of God he promised to those who he loves him? I love this. Why don't you, if you have your Bible open, look at the very last verse of chapter 4, and I'll read it. Verse 27 says, A religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. He's saying, aren't you, you know, you should know God's character now. God is in favor of the underdog. God is in favor of the poor. The poor will inherit the kingdom of God. It also says in Matthew, it says, or 1 Corinthians, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And so James here in verse 5 is saying, don't you know God's character? God's character is for these people. It's for these people. That is his character. Verse 6. But you have insulted the poor. It is not the rich who are exploiting you. Are they not the ones who are, are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of, of him to whom you belong? He's saying that your expectations are wrong. When we go from judgment to expectation, he's saying most likely you're wrong. Most likely when you do that, you are always going to be on the wrong side of the coin. In business for me, I always thought, well, when I, you know, have a business, this was before I got into it, it was like, I only want to deal with, you know, other Christian businesses, or I only want to deal with, like, Christian employees. And my wife can attest that the, the Christian segment of the world is the worst to do business with, the complete opposite of my expectation. I mean, absolutely. I will write up the stiffest contract when I'm dealing with a Christian. 
Why? Because I know I'm going to get scammed. I, I mean that with all seriousness is that, that I have the, these Christian clients, and I have a lot of great Christian clients. Don't get me wrong, but the one deals I've been burned on have always been Christians. I've had falling outs with Christian business partners. I've had drama with Christian employees. I've had drama everywhere. And so when we have these judgments and expectations, well, obviously, they're Christians. They're not going to jack with me, you know? No. He's saying that when you make those assumptions and judgments, that's not how it's going to be. We have to make intelligent decisions going forward and have good uh, wisdom with us. Do we know if those things are right just because they're Christian does not mean that they're above the law? So as a personal testimony for me, when I read this, I'm thinking, yeah, it's not the poor who are dragging, of course, the rich. I'm like, man, our expectations will kick us in the butt. Verse 8. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism to sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Jesus said, what are the two greatest commandments? First is love your Lord, your God, with all your heart, strength, soul, mind, body, DNA, everything. That is the greatest commandment. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, favoritism, this is where it comes in this one, is the second. If you don't love your neighbor as yourself, it doesn't matter about the first one. You completely void number one. The two greatest commandments go together. It says that all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And so he talks about committing adultery and murder— it's saying if you break one of them, you've broken all of it. And so as God calls us to holiness, to call to love him and to love others, if we're not loving others, then we really can't stand before God and say we truly love him, and we'll find out why. Last, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Essentially saying, behave as you know you ought to. Love your God with all your strength, heart, soul, spirit. Love your neighbor as yourself. And if you want God to give you mercy, then give others mercy. Whatever you want God to give you, you need to show to your neighbor and to others. So there's four truths. Now we extract the truth. There's four truths about this context tonight. Truth number one is that with favoritism, we become judges. Remember, Favoritism has judgment, expectation, and motive. So the first truth is that we become judges when it comes to favoritism. And the interesting thing is that when we judge someone, mentally we put down these labels and categories. They're so-and-so, they're this, they're, you know, whatever. It could be ethnicity, interest, whatever it is. You mentally, when you judge someone initially on that first impression, you put a label or category on them. Everyone does. Here's why this is so horrible that we do this, is because when we begin to categorize and label people and assign uh, specificity to someone's, you know, whatever, we now give ourselves permission to justify our actions with them. If they've, let's say, committed adultery, well, they've committed adultery. You know, I'm obviously going to go over here and, you know, do this. When we, when we label people that, when we're like, this is an alcoholic, well, I don't as associate with alcoholics. When we put those labels and categories on them, we give ourselves complete justification to do whatever we want in response. 
And we oftentimes justify the love we withhold. So as those judgments come up, we automatically just, in a split second, we put these categories on people. We become judges. Matthew 7, Jesus instructs strictly against us, says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. From the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Jesus makes a very powerful declaration about judging. Now, here's a crazy story. Gandhi. You guys all know him? Famous guy, super pacifist, you know. You just wish that guy could have at least had one drag-out battle just to show that he could, you know. But he was like the, the nicest, humble guy, and he stood for peace. Did you know he wanted to convert to Christianity? If you read his autobiography, you'll see that he talks about as a student— he was looking at the, uh, the, the culture and the laws in India and having something called the caste system. The caste system is all these series of categories and distinguishments between people, where they come from socially, economically, everything you can think about, the caste system. And it provides a million different walls in which people can dis- disassociate with each other, label each other, categorize each other, and justify them never interacting. It's called the caste system. And Gandhi looked at this and he's like, there's got to be a better way. He opened up the gospel. He read Jesus' teachings. He looked, at the, and he, and he looked at the truth and he said, surely with Christ's teaching, Christians have the truth to supersede the caste system, to have a religion and a relationship with a personal God that the supernatural transformation would transcend the differences between all of them. When he was a student. And Gandhi, in his autobiography, he writes about how one day he went to church and he went through with expressed intention to go to a minister and say, I want to become a Christian. I want to experience what this is. Gandhi's a, the biggest Hindu maybe in, in history. Stood for peace. Stood for everything that Jesus stood for. But just had the wrong guy. Guys, I guess. So he had the express purpose of going there with that. And he goes to the church. And he goes in and greets an usher. And the usher looks to him and says, you're not welcome here. You don't look like us. You don't belong here. This is not a church and a place of worship that you belong in. In fact, you need to go over there and go with people who are like you. You'll be more welcome there. Can you believe that? That he went there. He went there and he writes about how his expressed purpose was to come to Christ and to use the gospel, the living truth, to transcend the cultural boundaries that were so entrenched in India. And he goes there and an usher boots him out. How would you like to be that guy? at the end of life. Well, John, you did a great thing, except you booted Gandhi out of our church. So, I mean, that's kind of heavy, right? You wonder, like, what relationships are around us? What influences do we have when we treat somebody a certain way? And maybe we just turned away the next Gandhi. Or maybe we come into experiences, and maybe we've been discouraged, and it's completely snuffed out the hope that we have for the power of the gospel to change. I think it's a tragedy that that happens, and it's, it's clearly written in there, in his autobiography. It's amazing. Truth number two. Truth number two reveals our evil thoughts. Remember, it's expectations and motives. Favoritism will reveal for us those things in us. Those who show favoritism are focused on the perishable. We either choose that we want to gain something or avoid someone. Got that? With favoritism, you choose that you want to either gain something, there's something to benefit, or you want to avoid somebody. Now, we, we talk about different ways in which we maybe avoid people, and there's 
differences with individuals, and we put walls up, and we disassociate, and all these different things. And maybe for our generation, maybe it's a little bit more about the uncomfortable people. Maybe it's, it's not about all the people who have it all together. Maybe it's about the people who don't have it all together. In fact, they're difficult to be with. In fact, they're awkward. And we give ourselves permissions like, well, they're, they're kind of different. You know, it's hard to have a conversation with them. They're, you know, they have bad breath. They don't wear deodorant. You know, like you get, get that and you're just, you know, you feel bad, but you'd rather not be with them. Do you know who I'm talking about? Raise your hand. No, no, I'm just kidding. Um, but we all have those people in our life, right? And maybe it goes a little something like this. We're going to demonstrate something. Maybe this has been you. And um, I want to demonstrate real quick with some of our talented team. You guys can come up. About what this might look like. Because I think we've all been here at one point in time. When we encounter those people, we know they mean well, but it is just a train wreck. So here's a little snapshot. Yeah, mom, I'm on my way home. That was awkward. Hey, what's up? You like dogs? Yeah, yeah, totally. What about you? Awesome, thanks, guys. A little hand. You know, that's like that, that scenario where, like, you're in there and you're just like, man, this is awkward. This is a bummer. And what do we do about that? I ask myself that as we encounter those people, why does it stir up in us such uncomfortability? Jeff's a pretty, you know, stoic guy. But, you know, like you encounter, you know, instances and you're super uncomfortable. You're getting spit on. You're getting water on you. Like, you, you know, you, you get that and you're just, I wish I was anywhere else. And I, I was, I'm wondering, like, why does it bother us? What do we fear? What is there to lose when we're in those circumstances with that person we'd really rather not be with? Because I tell you, in that scenario, after that one awkward encounter, those two never hang out again. If you're like most Christians, you have an awkward moment, you're like, that was weird. I don't need to talk to that person again. You know, they'll be fine over there. 
I wonder, like, what is it that we fear about it? I think maybe, if I'm honest with you guys, I think maybe we're afraid that God is calling us to be their best friend. Is that the fear? You're like, oh God, don't, don't, don't call me to be their best friend, you know. Let them be someone else's best friend. That's the only fear I can think of. And we'll leave that fear for something else, because that is its own message in of itself, where you got some other heart issues going on. And here's the, the key thing. If that is you, you need to remember that Jesus loved all. We're commanded to love our neighbors as ourselves. Jesus had 12 that he was intimate with. You can still be intimate with friends and still love everybody around you. There's no reason that you need to have these areas where people feel unloved and feel isolated. When we isolate ourselves, when we begin to separate ourselves away from maybe those awkward people, the, the people who are a little bit dirty or messy or, or poor or whatever it is, or, or they have their different baggage and, and issues, when we do that, we become partners with segregation. And segregation in the church is not a good thing. We are called to be one as Jesus is one. And so when we do that, we become partners in that. I remember because I was in Santa Barbara, and, uh, and I was there, and there's a ton of homeless people in Santa Barbara, just like anywhere else. And so one day I was, I was there, and, and this guy Gibby and Steve, two guys, and Gibby was train wreck. I mean, he obviously wasn't all there upstairs. And, uh, and so he'd mean, hey, I'm Gibby. Vietnam vet shot once in the back and once in the head. And about 36 seconds would go by later, name is Gibby, shot once in the back and once in the head. And he would have like this, like, you know how goldfish, like, their, their memory's like only about 14 seconds long. It's like, oh, this is new. Oh, this is new. You know, that's why goldfish are always swimming around. They, you know, they have no memory. And this is Gibby. And so he was like loud and, you know, God bless him. I don't know where he is now, but, but a friend and I, we teamed up and we said, we want to love on these two guys. We want to love on Steve and Gibby. And so we decided to take him to church. And we're like a smaller church. And it was like our big thing. And we, we, we felt like this is what we're called to do. And so we take these two guys. And I wish I could tell you it was the most amazing experience. It was the most awful experience ever. It was the most awful experience ever. Both of them were drunk when we picked them up for Sunday morning, which started out awkward. But it made for some great dancing while music was going. They loved the music. They were just up here, you know. They, were, they loved worship. They were just, you know, drunk in the spirit, right, or something like that. No, they, they were just charging it. And then about 14 seconds into the message, both of them are snoring. And you could smell their B.O. and the alcohol on their breath. I mean, it filled the place like aroma. It was like... You walk in a place, you're like, what died? You know, <laughs> I had something die in my truck. It, it was just like that. And I wish that the church kind of rallied around them. I wish those members had gravitated around like, man, so glad you're here. I know you didn't hear a word of the message, but man, you are in the right place. God has a plan and a purpose for you, even though you're drunk and asleep. Because I believe that. I believe that God's power and his transcending supernatural ability transcends whether those guys were sober and paying attention, taking notes. But because they were weird, because they smelled funny, because they were distracting, not a single one in the church came up and introduced themselves. Not one person offered, hey, I'd like to buy you lunch today. Hey, I have some extra clothes in my closet I don't wear. I'd love to give them to you. Not one person And I was so discouraged by that as I never brought them back to church again. It's like, why do it? I only felt awkward. It was selfish of me not to do it again. I shouldn't have cared, right? 
But I brought him here, and, and so when that happens, we, we like to look at things, and we say that, man, these people aren't what we want. We don't want people kind of like that. We like people like this. And that begins this, this process of, of segregation and, and this, this principle of, of spiritual ingrowing. There's a, an author, George Hall, who's writing about this. He's writing articles about the desire for churches to grow, right? They want to grow. They want to have more people in, in the pews. They want to have the body of Christ united. But here's the one catch is they don't want people who are not like them. They're like, we want the rich white Americans who tithe a lot in our church every Sunday. And so they have this principle in which they want to grow, but they are so committed and, and customizing the way in which they market, and they, they, they want to grow this side. And nowhere in the Bible does God call you to say, create a sliver of the body of Christ in a church format. He says, come all you who are brokenhearted and weary. All. And so he's, he's talking about how the, that they, these people, when they come and they feel shunned, they don't feel welcome, and so they have that experience that Gandhi had, and they leave. And I tell you the truth is that for a long time, even in this format, I chased cool people. I had kind of like my target list. I had people who, you know, man, if, if they could start going to Epic Life, man, that would kind of turn the corner, and, you know, people would really like those people, and we get more people, and, you know, I thought, like, maybe if we stacked, like, some cooler people as props here, you know, maybe that'd make things a little more cool, cooler. And I've learned that cool people do not make communities grow. In fact, those cool people, I think, have been a huge hindrance. Nothing against them, but just because the focus is wrong. It's not about getting the cool influencers in. It's about having the power of the transformational influence of Jesus in our life. Amen? And I think as we look at us and we think, is this our community? Do we want it to grow? Then we need to, as a community, decide that we need to be all arms wide open for anybody who would come in here. The funkier, the better, right? We can't have people come in here and feel ostracized and leave. And I think this is an amazing issue that is rampant in our church. I don't know why we have so many stinking denominations. Anybody know? I mean, like, I get it. Maybe some styles, like, hey, if you're into hymns, cool. If you're into rock and roll, awesome. I, I get that. But it seems like the further the church goes, the deeper it goes, the more walls that get kind of put up. And I'm troubled by it. I don't know what to really do with it. And there's a principle here when we focus on communities that are only the, the cool, white, rich people. And there's a, a sort of, of, uh, of spiritual and social economic cleansing, I think, that goes on in the church. Now, that's a powerful statement. I'm going to jump here to the fourth, or to the third truth. Is that favoritism, and this is heavy, favoritism is social and spiritual cleansing of our communities, of our churches of our relationships. You think like, that kind of sounds familiar. That's because it's typically used with Nazis. About ethnic cleansing, right? They had the idea of what the perfect person, the, the perfect race would be. And anything contrary to that is they would isolate and even kill them. Now you might be saying, whoa, you just compared the church to Hitler and Nazism. I get it. So, but hear me out here. You might say, oh, well, you know, we're not killing people. I beg to differ. When people come into communities of the body of Christ and they are rejected and they feel unwelcome and are completely shunned, that does a couple things to them. That says to them they are not welcome in that place. That completely ostracizes them. And I would say that that is a more punishable offense than death. And, and get this, this is crazy. In the South 
Pacific and the Polynesian islands, these little tiny islands, there are no prisons. There are no prisons. These small communities, maybe a few hundred people on these islands, and here's exactly why. When someone commits murder, steals to something, the whole entire community comes together and they all decide and vote that this person is out of their community. They all make a pact not to talk, not to deal with, not to trade with, not to sell anything to. And they just say, we're not going to punish you, we're not going to lock you up, we're not going to whip you. We are just going to completely ignore you. Crazy. And it is a matter of weeks before those people wander off and are never to be seen again. It is capital punishment by isolation. Can you believe that? Death penalty by seclusion, by isolation. They don't have a need to have prisons. They don't actually even need to have any punishment. People know that is the crime and the, the punishment, and so they have this very little crime over there. My wife and I, we vacation in some of those islands, and we're like amazed that there's not more crime, and it, it, I now understand why. Can you imagine that? Having the only people you know to exist and to be in community with all of a sudden turn their backs, and it's like you don't exist. And so when we put walls up and when we decide to step back and separate ourselves from people, we are essentially partnering in a capital punishment of death from them. If those people go into complete isolation, is that not torture? It like stirs my heart. I'm just, I'm, I'm challenged by that, about that whole principle. When we refuse to interact with someone, it is to say in a sense that I wish you were dead. It is to say, you are not worthy to be part of a community, and I wish you would rather disappear. So we look at favoritism. We look at ways in which I'm not excluding people. I'm just choosing these people. Right? Seems like kind of okay. Not so much. And the fourth truth is this, is that favoritism means we miss out on the encounters of the living God. If you still have your Bible open, turn to Matthew chapter 25 and I'll have the band come up here too. Matthew. Matthew 25. Verse 31. I'm in the wrong chapter. There we go. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. And all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. The righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison or go to visit you? They're like, we didn't do that. What are you talking about? You got the wrong people here. 
The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he'll say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. I was in church with you, and you did not invite me in. I was there, and you did nothing. They will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or in needing of clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for me, do for the least of these you did not do for me. I've always heard the first part, whatever you do to the least of these you do for me. I've never heard the opposite. Whatever you don't do to these, you don't do to me. You get it? It's, it's not about choosing these people and just doing nothing. It's doing nothing is not a good option. It's a double-edged sword. Sure, find people you have affinity with and do life and participate in community with them. Yes, but that doesn't mean that you allow other people to feel ostracized. That doesn't mean that you just let that kind of go and float by and don't address it. God has a two-part answer for that. Whatever you do not do for these, you do not do for me. It cuts both ways. What are we missing out? James 4, 17 says, Anyone who knows the good they ought to do, but don't do it, to them it is sin. If you know that there's some good that you should do, and you don't do it, the Bible says that it is sin. Heavy. Bummer. If you feel that you should do something that you know is right, and you don't do it, you walk in rebellion, and to, to you and God, that is sin. And so we close and just ask God to open our eyes. If you're a person who's raised all these walls and plays favorites, that's fine. Repent of it tonight. Say, Lord, forgive me for that. And open my eyes, God, to who you'd want me to do this to. The least of these. Show me how I can do better. This. Show me your heart that I can extend to these individuals. God's not asking you to have anybody in your wedding that you don't want in your wedding. That's fine. But there's a whole boundary and a whole territory in which we need to address the segregation that's going on in our communities, in our groups, and the people who need Jesus the most is that we need to have our eyes wide open, include them in, draw them in with all their smelly breath, missing deodorant, all that stuff. And just say, we include you in community here. You're not going to get a wedding invite? Maybe. Maybe you will. I don't know. It depends on how late it is. But I'm going to do life with you. That's okay. I hope you invite them to your wedding. That'd be awesome. But... The point is that God has us for tonight is that we would be a generation to have arms wide open for anybody who would come in here. Anybody who you do life with is that we would have the least of these in here. And the Bible says that when we entertain strangers, we often are entertaining angels. How cool would it be to have a reverse Gandhi experience where someone comes in here and we encounter the next world changer? It'd be crazy. I'd love to be a part of a generation of community that thinks and breathes and, ex and strives after that. Let's all stand. So, Lord God, we thank you for tonight. God, we thank you for, God, just the heart you have for your church. Lord, we thank you that you desire wholeness. God, a body of, of Christ, of individuals that make up multiple parts, all different and unique. Lord, let us, God, run 
to your heart when it is dealing with other people. God, forgive us of the ways in which, God, we've played favorites. We've mocked the poor in that. Lord, we've cast judgment. We've minimalized people's expectations. God, we've changed our motives. We've sought to distort, God, your body in ways, Lord, that have allowed us to turn a blind eye. So, Lord, I just pray tonight, God, as we close tonight and we sing, God, that you'd open our eyes, our hearts. Lord, I pray for divine appointments, Lord, that our hearts would be open to whatever good thing that you'd have for us, Lord, that we would do unto another. God, even the small things, God, you are a God that cares about the small acts of obedience. We don't need to go out and feel that we need to end poverty, but Lord, that we can maybe just provide somebody hope this week. That we could offer life and offer the gift of your love, Lord, in such a small, tiny way, Lord. I just pray for small things that you would do in us this week. And going forward, Lord, that we could just take a small step forward and say yes. We accept you. We love you because you're my neighbor, because you are in community, because you are loved by God, and therefore I love you. Lord, have us to have our DNA completely changed around that. Lord, this is completely counterculture to everything. So Lord, transform us from the inside out. Lord, may we be transformed by the renewing of our mind and not conform to the patterns of this world. Would you do that, Lord? We thank you, God, that you're faithful to answer, to promise. God, I pray for favor in this room. I pray for anointing, God, to fall over the heads, the hands, the feet of every person in here, Lord that you would have a supernatural equipping, God, to reach their personal destiny, God, to reach the personal fulfillment that you have for their life, and Lord, that we would be a community of upsets. Lord, individuals who are beating the odds, Lord, the world changers that would be here would be us, Lord. Could you do that? Let us to be foolish to believe, God, that we're already there and to walk in the faith that it's there. And bolster our faith, though, Lord. God, we want to be transformed. Would you help us tonight in that? We worship you, Lord. We praise you. And commit this praise to you. In Jesus' name, amen.